Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I'm Sarah. And I'm Beth. We are lawyers, mothers, and hosts of the bipartisan podcast, Pantsuit Politics. Just as we differ in political philosophy, we've arranged our lives in very different ways, from our careers to where we live to our choices around marriage and family. But we have more in common than divides us. In a world that increasingly defaults to false dichotomies, we explore the messiness of living wisely. Choices, trade-offs, priorities, and grace of living a nuanced life. Welcome to another episode of The Nuanced Life. We are here today, but we'll be sharing commemorations, feedback, and our thoughts on the New York Times article went a little viral, Motherhood in the Age of Fear. And I am fired up. I thought if we gave it time, like if I could like come down a little bit since I read the article and we talked about, I mean, it's been like two weeks, but you know what? The second I was like gearing up for this episode, I'm like, oh no, I'm still real fired up, so... I'll try to take some deep breaths through our commemorations and feedback before we get to the article itself. And I will also say that if you are not a parent, stay with us because yeah. I think there's a large cultural conversation to have around uh-huh. this article. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But first, my favorites, commemorations. Yay. We'll start with Kate, who is beginning her third IVF cycle. Hooray, Kate. She said, I feel the need to commemorate the start of this cycle because I wasn't sure I'd ever be open to trying again after our second round, which ended in a miscarriage. While the miscarriage was awful, the patient care experience was even worse. Give me a minute to be angry on her behalf because that's my favorite emotion. And someone having a miscarriage, having a patient care experience that awful makes me so angry. And it happens all the time. I know that makes me angrier. Okay. Now, a year later, Kate says, I feel like we're at a point where we found the right clinic, assembled the right medical team for us, done every test and pre-IVF surgery imaginable, and are physically and emotionally ready to try again. Regardless of outcome, I feel the need to commemorate all the work we have done to get to this point. Also, I just want to say part of the reason that it makes me so angry is because, of course, that would have an impact on your outcome. So being a place where you feel trusted in your body's like, okay. I feel like I can trust these people. I feel like I could, I mean, stress, all that stuff. Like, come on, y'all. Relate it. So I'm so happy you found a good spot, Kate. We are sending you all the best vibes, Kate. I hope that this goes really well for you and that it's a good experience and that you have more to commemorate with us very soon. We also heard from Jill. She says, I have a deep appreciation for seasons of all types from the changing of weather each year to the rhythms over our lifetime. So I love that you celebrate those on The Nuance Life. Next week, I am celebrating a new season as I send my youngest child to preschool. I'm a mom of six. 16 years ago, my husband, then boyfriend, and I had our youngest child when we were 18 and freshman in college. So I've literally never been an adult who wasn't a mom. I have loved every stage so far. And while I don't want to wish the years away, I'm very much looking forward to the three hours every weekday where I will only be in charge of myself. It's been 
a lovely decade and a half of babies and toddlers. So I celebrate what that was and what is coming. I'm excited to see what it will feel like next to be a mom who has not needed 24 hours every day and begin to learn more about who I am outside of being a mama with a baby on her hip. I can't wait to experience this next season with my kids, my husband, and myself. Can I just say, Jill is amazing. And when she said decade and a half of babies and toddlers, I went, I barely made it like five. That's amazing. A mom of six who started at 18. I'm just like, Jill. Woo, Jill. Somebody give Jill a massage. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Give Like, give Jill all the things. Jill deserves a Jill parade. All the parade. I'm ready for a parade and all the things for Jill. Just, yeah, man, that's killer. Just killer. Killing it, Jill. You're killing it. Also, she also said at the end, and a side note, don't let anyone ever tell you teenagers are anything but other than wonderful, which made me feel so good. Thanks, Jill. But here's what you have to know. Jill is an optimist. Like, Jill is a person who loves life. And I do think that a lot of moms of large families develop a higher level of consciousness than I have. I think about my friend Jamie, who has six kids. Jamie is a more evolved human being than I am. She just is. You can't listen. Radical acceptance, like Buddhist acceptance of life. I think that happens at four four children. And I've I've thought about this a lot because I only have three. And everyone says when you go from three to four, and I think there's even studies on this. At like three, you're still holding on to your expectations of what should happen. And by four, you're like, everybody's allowed today. I killed it. You know, like, I think you just, you have to, like, it's just, there is, it's not sustainable. Like any sort of clinging to your own expectations or to some sense of control, it's just not sustainable after four. And so that's why I think once you hit like four or five, the the women who have that, like that level of kids, they're like, they're just like surfers, man. They're just like maintaining the waves. They're happy when they catch a wave. They're very relaxed about when they don't. Like, it's amazing. We also heard from Mike. My commemoration for the Nuance Life is that my wife and I are both back at work and our six-month-old is in daycare full-time. Talk about a big step. We were lucky enough to get three months of leave. Here is where a rant about family leave policies comes in. That's amazing. But now we are transitioning to the new normal. The good news is that he's doing great and we're figuring it out. Congratulations, Mike and family. That is wonderful. Also, I love six-month-olds. It's such a good age where they can, like, sit up but not crawl. Mm, I love a six-month-old. It's nine months where I get really excited about them. And we heard from Lisa, who says she's about the same age as we are, and four of her college girlfriends and I have made it a priority to get together about once a year to catch up and keep up. It doesn't always work out, particularly since we have started having children about seven years ago. We live all over the country and usually pick a neutral city to get together. And once the kids came along, we used it as a chance to get away from mommyhood for a weekend and connect with our old selves. This weekend marked a new chapter for those reunions. I hosted my four girlfriends for the weekend, and they each brought their oldest child along with them. I'm not going to lie. It was trying at times, having that many people stay at my house and other people's kids aren't always the easiest to be around. Amen to that. (laughs) However, it was such a blessing for me to meet their children who all seemed to be so much like my close girlfriends and to see these women as mothers. We've gone from coming of age together to turning the page to parenthood, and it feels really good. We are all different in our approaches to parenting and in life in many ways, but these women are so important to me, and I'm so grateful that I get to see them in this next phase of their lives and meet these little people who mean so much to them. And Lisa sent us a picture, which was a true delight. I love everything about this. I think there needs to be like a special word for the happiness and love you feel watching like you and your friend's kids play together. Oh, it's just the best. Like, I will never forget how amazing it felt when Griffin 
described my dear friend Elizabeth, whose family we vacation with every summer, as his cousins. He was like, oh, you know, my other cousins, my cousins, Chuck and David. I'm like, well, they're not, yeah, you know, you know, no, actually, yeah, your cousins. That's right. Those are your cousins. Like, it's just the, it's such, because we're chosen family. And to, so, to see your children play like that and, like, get to know each other and to get to know the kids. And mm, I just love it. Like, I call my friend Elizabeth's daughter, my vacation daughter. <laughs> She's my she's my vacation daughter because I went, so I just take her on vacation and she's mine on vacation. I just love it. I think it's the best. I also love that they only brought their oldest children. I I've think that's super smart, super smart. It's smart. And I've been thinking a lot about how I need to do more with my girls independently because mm-hmm. we do everything together as a family. Chad and I love to spend time together. Chad and I love to spend time with both of our girls. I need to do more. You and dad are going to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just taking Ellen to do that. Jane and I are just going to do this together because a, a lot of that gets built in just logistically. But for special things like this, I need to get more focused in on that. So thank you for that inspiration, Lisa. Thank you all for your commemorations. I swear people could send me an email saying I just got a new toothpaste and I'd be like, yes, for you and your toothpaste. We will celebrate love, your toothpaste. I love people taking these moments to reflect on their lives in this way. So thank you for sharing with us, everybody. Love it. I also. On the note of moving from commemorations, but talking about taking your kids by themselves, we got this amazing email from Elizabeth, and she said, before my daughters went to kindergarten, their dad and I took them to an amusement park all day to celebrate and practice waiting in lines and flexibility and schedules, which I thought was so smart. And then I took them on a weekend trip before they turned 10 to talk about puberty and sex. I'm debating a big before high school or turning 16 trip as well. And I think that is genius. So, so genius. Because it's the one-on-one time, and I thought the particularly like the like waiting in line and schedule before kindergarten. Also, I just think that's a good age because they still like the characters and they're like swept up in the magic. But I've always wanted to do the individual trip like right before puberty. I heard that I remember reading one time that Susan Sarandon and Tim Robbins did that with their kids, and I thought I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna take my kids on solo trips when they're ten. But they did it like per gender, and then I wouldn't get to take any kid to do that. So we're gonna have to think of new rules in the Holland family because I'm not gonna be left out off all three trips. Please and thank you. You know what that teaches that I think is so relevant? That you need to step away from the everyday to think about big things sometimes. Yes. I give this advice about business a lot. You know, when there's a really hard business problem, I find myself often saying, you really need like a mini retreat. You need to take people out of the office for a focused block of time to just talk about this problem Mm -hmm. and then dive back into everything. That's really counterintuitive for most of us. And I think giving your kids that sense from an early age that that there are some things that are important and they require us to put the phone down and put the normal schedule away and go to a place and say, here is our container for this conversation. We're going to have it now. I love that. Yeah, I think that's so, so, so smart. We got a lot of messages about our conversation with Allie Worthington and one particular aspect of that conversation that rubbed people the wrong way. So as we like to be transparent about things, we're going to be transparent and talk with y'all about an uncomfortable moment in that conversation and everyone's reactions to it. Well, and first of all, so many people sort of half apologized when reaching out to us about that, which was completely unnecessary because, first of all, you were not alone. Second of all, I think both of us recognize the moment in the show itself. And you never have to apologize for saying, hey, I didn't love this. Like, that's just not a thing you have to apologize to us about. 
And I want to be clear, because we love Allie, that this wasn't a, I didn't love the conversation as a whole. Mm-hmm. And and we did hear people saying like, oh, it was really fun to hear people talking about women in business and how the online space is so much more conducive to that. So I, I also don't want to have this be like a, let's Pile treat on. our guest with anything less than love and respect, especially because this is a person that we do love and respect. Mm-hmm. But Robin emailed us. She was one of several that emailed us. And she said... I felt myself cringing when Miss Worthington spoke of her lack of freedom to talk about her faith in public space. It sounded very similar to some men's reaction to the Me Too movement and that there wasn't much nuance in understanding how historical power and privilege had played into this dynamic, but rather a quick jump to persecutory explanation. I won't deny Christians need to tread carefully when discussing their faith, but I feel this is an overcorrection that might be warranted, given how dominating and silencing of others the Christian faith has been in our culture for generations. Even in Miss Worthington's discourse about this, she was dismissive and pejorative of other meaning-making systems, thereby denying others the very respect she is requesting for herself. As a Christian myself who has devoted much time to studying my faith, I earned an MA in theology while working on my PhD in psychology at the seminary I attended, I probably align more with Ms. Worthington's beliefs than the secret. However, I feel I recognize my perspective has been at that table for a long time, and it's on me to make space for other perspectives. I appreciate you both try to steer the conversation back to one of inclusivity. Thanks for your continued efforts to keep it nuanced in all areas of life, Robin. I think this conversation is very related to a discussion that we had at the end of yesterday's Pansy Politics episode about how we tell our stories about life. And I think that for many people of faith, their life stories so include that faith and and we are so connected to that faith that anything uncomfortable, anything other than open arms about it can cause us to become quite defensive. And I think that we don't do a good job trusting ourselves and trusting each other to just show up and be who we are and have that be okay. And so I understand where Allie's coming from about this. You also probably heard me very quickly try to say something like, well, I, like I can make space for the secret, you know, because I did, I did feel that, that coming up and and for me, a, a big part of where I am in my spiritual journey is if we can all just get to there is love that connects us, I'm really excited about that. So I don't share that sense of it's hard for me to talk about my faith because Christians are persecuted. I have more that it's hard for me to talk about my faith because I worry about all of the baggage that is that is piled on to that for me as a Christian and a white person and everything else. Right. Well, and I so I was thinking very much about my role in the conversation because, you know, Beth quickly tried to steer the conversation, but you can hear me giggling along. And I feel a lot of guilt about that. And I feel like I do what I often do. And I think a lot of us do, which is I want to make a person feel comfortable I want to make a person um, who particularly is taken out of the taken out of their time to come on the show, and who and I think, but then I think about my reaction in several other interviews, and especially because I think a lot of it is about like a shared identity, and I um, wanted to feel sort of in the space with her and feel harmony in the conversation, and want her to feel like, oh yeah, we're on the same team, and. I understand because I think that makes better interviews for one thing when people feel heard and understood and feel like the person understands their experience. But, you know, and because I was looking for comfort for her and for me so that the conversation could continue in a 
in a productive way, right? But I think I really was so focused on myself and her feeling comfortable that I knew immediately that that was going to make other people feel uncomfortable and that that moment made me feel uncomfortable. And so instead of saying, you know, holding the tension and saying, oh, wait, hold on, that gives me a little bit of pause. That's not how I feel. Instead of acknowledging like, oh, wait, we're diverging here. I did just the instinctual thing, which is I wanted to I wanted to bring back I wanted harmony and I wanted us to be back on the same side again. And so I sort of like giggled. Oh, yeah. uh huh. And like, even though that's not my experience at all. And I was reading a piece by Brene Brown and I thought I thought immediately of the conversation and people's feedback about it. She says, because the yearning for belonging is so primal, we often try to acquire it by fitting in and by seeking approval, which are not only hollow substitutes for belonging, but often barriers to it. And I'm really sad in that moment that I think I took the yearning for belonging and I followed that instead of and created a barrier more than what I was trying to do, which was to create comfort and openness and and a better conversation. And I'm sorry about that. You know, I think the harder question, because here's the thing, like, this is a situation where we're talking to a person we really like and care about, about something that is really important to her in a space where it's really important to us to be kind and to treat people as guests and to make them comfortable, as you said. And you also, I always am doing this calculus of like, what can actually be accomplished in this moment? Mm. And what are we trying to accomplish in this moment? And I think that Having said what we've said about our time on the show in this situation, thinking about, as one of our listeners, Sarah, asked us to do, thinking about how do you deal with moments like this mm-hmm. just in life is really tricky because I don't know that we need to choose every battle, right? I don't know that we need to every time someone says something that rubs us the wrong way, it's our work to dive into that. Maybe it is your work to have that conversation with someone about faith. I'm not sure that it is mine. I I did not feel in that moment like it was important to flesh out everything that underlies that sentiment. It felt more important to me to say, I respect all faiths. Let's move on. <laughs> you know. Well, and I also kind of realized, kind of wished afterwards. It, I, I think you're right. I don't think that's why we had her here to have that particular conversation. There's a part of me that will that wishes. You know, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong or inauthentic or dishonest about editing and just being like that didn't contribute to the conversation we were trying to have. Let's just cut it. Right. I I had that same feeling. I wish we had, I wish we had cut that section because I do think it took away from a, a much more that it took away from the conversation we were trying to have mm-hmm. in life. Though, as you encounter those moments, the thing that I want to stress and that is part of my own learning is that we can even be outraged by what someone who we love says without disconnecting from them. So I go back to something that happened to me last Christmas when a relative said something about me too that really bothered me. And I felt like we got to a really good place. I did push back on it. I did. And I spoke from a place of personal experience. Here is my experience with this topic. And the relative looked at me and said, you know what? I'd never thought about the kinds of experiences that you might be having. But as I sit here and do, you must have a lot of experiences like this. And and we really were able to get to a new place. Now, was it like a transformative moment where 
henceforth this person believes every story that every woman tells about a terrible experience that's happened to her and becomes an advocate for change and starts wearing like feminist t-shirts? No, because that is not how life works. But I do think that we were able to deepen our connection through that conflict because that remained the goal. And that's my suggestion. If you are having a conversation where something comes up that makes you really uncomfortable, pausing for a second to say, how can we at the end of this have deepened our connection rather than how can I convince this person that I am right about this? I think I think that is a useful way to engage. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, speaking of picking battles, <laughs> sometimes there are things not worth going to the mat over. And sometimes there are, and that is how I feel about motherhood in the age of fear, which we're going to talk about next. Katie and many other people sent us an article from the New York Times about the tendency of folks to call the police when they see a child in a car alone or a child alone at a park or otherwise assume that some parent is not doing the parent's job by hovering over the child every five seconds. And the sometimes devastating consequences of people engaging our government to step in when their personal values about parenting, they think, based on what they've witnessed and without further information, are being violated. And I think this article is a fantastic jumping off point for a big picture discussion, not only about parenting, but about the ways that we take care of each other and the way that we work out our stuff on other people and our tendency to call the police too quickly. I'm sorry. I'm going to take some deep breaths a lot during this conversation. Okay. I have been thinking about this for a very long time. I am totally fascinated with the free range conversation. I like to believe in myself as not a helicopter parent, not a free range parent, and a person who really thinks um, critically about risk and benefit. For example, I think that the way I think about fear and risk and danger really started with the decisions I made about birth. There are very, very, I had two home births, and there are very scary things that can happen in birth. They are very minor risks. And um, I decided to weigh the benefits and the risk, and I chose to have my baby at home, two babies at home. And what I heard from people is, and what I realized was happening, and I think it happens over and over again, is first we decide the presence of any risk means that a situation is dangerous. And that is not true. The presence of any risk does not mean that a situation is dangerous because guess what every situation has? Risk. And we have to decide that there is a spectrum of risk in which you will lead to danger 
And, you know, we all make different calls about what our threshold is. But the idea that there is some objective standard and that the presence of any risk means that a situation is dangerous and we should all intercede, we all have got to calm down. That is my first thing. How do you feel about that? Well, I agree completely, um, especially about birth. And I and that's a battle that I lost in my own house because my husband's concern about the risk of a home birth was very, very present for him in a way that he just could not get through. And I did not want to have a home birth without his support. And I, I could not secure his support because his feeling was that, yes, it might be a low, like statistically improbable thing, but what could happen if this thing happens is so devastating that I want to avoid it. And I think that is our cultural canvas. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is improbable that our child will be kidnapped. But if they're kidnapped, I can't think of anything worse. Yep. And so I'm going to do everything I can to avoid it. Yes, it would be awful if if this happened. It's probably not going to happen, but it's too awful. I can't contemplate it. And I think we're depriving ourselves of agency by thinking that way. And I think that depriving ourselves of agency makes us even more afraid and that we're in this cycle. That's the thing. You're not making the decision based on risk. You're making the decision based on fear. And that is different. That is a different decision-making analysis. And I try very hard to make decisions based on risk and not fear. I don't want to live my life governed by fear. That is not the life I want to live. That is a value, a personal value I hold very dear. Not to be a person afraid to live in the world, not to make decisions on fear and not risk. And what this article talks about, and you know, I've thought about a lot, is what wears me out the most about the, the calling of the people with the kids in their car, which has happened to friends of mine, is your child is at greater risk driving to the grocery store than they are being left in the car alone while you are inside the grocery store. The number one cause of death for children named ages 1 to 24 is accidents, and the number one cause of accidental death is auto accidents. And it ain't when the cars are standing still. It's when they're driving. So, I mean, that just, it really burns me because it's just, oh, I'm so fear they're going to be, they're going to be, Kidnapped. Do you know what the odds of your child being kidnapped and murdered are? 1.5 million to one. 1.5 million to one. It is like, I wrote a blog post about this several years ago, and I'll link it in the show notes. It's like the safest time to be a child. And basically all of human history. Child victimization, I'm going to read this paragraph from my blog. Child victimization has been a steady decline for 40 years. Based on crime statistics since the 1970s, child sexual abuse is down 53%, physical abuse is down 52%, aggravated assault is down 69%, robbery is down 62%, and larceny is down 54%. It's just, it's a safer time to be a child. But this was my favorite thing I found in my research for this article, that when they studied whether or not this is a British study. Whether or not parents let their children play outside, the parents blamed a lack of playground, lack of sidewalks, a lot of stuff we talk about a lot. 
But the real reason was there was no link between play patterns or play provisions, meaning the presence of playgrounds. Children are no more likely to pay outdoors or play further away from home if there are adequate opportunities provided within their neighborhood. Rather, the evidence of this paper is that the most significant influence on children's access to independent play is not the level of public provisions of play facilities, but parental anxiety about children's safety and the nature, changing nature of childhood. Parental anxieties. And so that's the thing to me. It's like, it's not just that other people are afraid, which what really burns me is, I think, inherent in somebody calling the cops on you. And really, I, I like your husband a lot. But what I heard a lot when I heard about home births from people was, I'm more concerned about the safety of your baby than you are. When I call the cops, I'm more con- concerned about the safety of your children than you are. How dare you? How dare you think you care about the safety of my kids more than I do? I birthed them. I carried them for nine months. The fierceness for which I feel responsibility to them knows no end. And that's what just burns me up, man. The fact that you think you care or the fact that we're all letting ourselves, these voices make the best decisions for our kids and not the actual objective reality of what's best for our kids. I'm sorry, you're gonna have to talk for a while so I can calm down. Here's the thing that that I think we all need to get right with. Mm. The expression of fear mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is a cheap substitute for actual care. Yes, yes. If you believe that a child in a car is in danger because the parent is not sitting in the car with them, don't get your cell phone out and call the police. Stand there and Mm -hmm. see if the parent comes back. Mm -hmm. Go in the store and say, it's hot outside. I see this kid. I'm concerned. Get involved. Mm -hmm. We have constantly on like these community Facebook pages, which I don't know are a great idea. You know, you see people saying to whoever called the cops about my party or to whoever called the cops about this thing in my driveway. Why didn't you just come talk to me? And I always think, why didn't they just come talk to you? Yep. And, and, And I don't know the answer to that, except that it feels to me like a direct line from I don't trust my seven-year-old to stay in the car while I run into Walgreens to an adult who doesn't trust herself to confront a situation and instead calls the cops. Mm -hmm. Like building resilience in our children, it's a wonderful time to be a child because it's so safe, but it's kind of a miserable time in that we're not giving you any life skills Mm -hmm. and we're suffering the consequences of a bunch of adults who don't have any life skills. Mm Mm-hmm. My favorite, and by that I mean maybe the angriest part of this article, is they also talk about a study where, like, depending on why a woman left her child was directly correlated to whether people thought the child was in danger. So, like, if it was like, well, she was she went to get her nails done. Oh, the child is in great danger. Oh, well, she, you know, th- something else was on fire in another room. Oh, well, the child was in that great of danger. And not surprising literally anyone, when it was a father, the child was not as in much danger. Okay, so the danger is not changing, y'all. It's just the situation in which the parents left. Makes me so angry. And I think that's what we're seeing across the country when people are calling the police about somebody who they think shouldn't be at their community pool. Yep. This is about all the things operating in our subconscious. Yep. And look, it is it is natural for things to be operating in our brains. Our brains do that. Our brains sort and characterize and and try to avoid any risk that is how we are hardwired right we are hardwired for if this outcome is possible and awful no matter how likely it is i'm going to do my best to avoid it that's in our makeup okay 
We can take responsibility, though, for what we do from there. And we are not caring about kids by having those kids end up speaking to a social services agency Mm -hmm. about whether their parents are neglecting them when the parents have just made a different choice than you might have in the same situation. And they're allowed to do that. I mean, my favorite line in the whole article is where it says, a mother apparently cannot be harassed. A mother can only be corrected. And I would substitute a black person or a gay person can only be corrected. That's what it is, right? All these situations are fear with the presence of, I have the power to correct you. You are a member of a group that we've all decided needs correcting, be it because of gender or the color of your skin. Instead of, because, and here what else, here's what else I think is presence, which is just the idea that I wouldn't do that. You need correcting because I don't need correcting. I'm always right. I don't make those kinds of mistakes. I would never do that. You know what burns me up so much is when people, when one of those terrible accidents happen where the parent leaves the child in the car, they're, I mean, 99% of them are accidents and somebody was not supposed to take the kid that day. And the self-righteousness of the people who were like, well, I would never do that. No, no, no. That's not how you prevent situations like that. If you are really concerned about the safety of your children, the first thing you should say is, oh my God, I could do that. How do I prevent it? Oh my God, I could absolutely do that. I love my child just as much as they do. I love that it's this, it's this, um, this, this pulling yourself out and deciding you're better as opposed to seeing ourselves all as a part of the community and member, all of us who should hold children at high, you know, the safety of children at high esteem. But instead of saying, we're on the same team trying to keep these kids safe, it's, well, I would never do that. And this person needs correcting. I think that's right. And that is, that is shown in our responses to these situations. Because Mm -hmm. right now in America, you see something you don't like. It seems like we have two modes. One is to call the police. And wash our hands of it and tell ourselves how how loving and caring and mighty we are because we did something, right? Or the other is to go into full assault mode with the individual, mm-hmm. yelling at the person, marshalling a crowd to yell back at the person. That, those are both really unhealthy responses to a situation. I think the thing that we can – if we really love our kids and we really love our communities and our neighbors, the best thing we can do – is uplift other parents. Mm -hmm. It is so traumatizing for a child to sense that their parent is in trouble. Why would we do that to each other? Mm -hmm. And so if you're really concerned about a situation and your concern is well-placed, the best thing you can do is keep it low-key. Yep. Hey, I just wanted to ask because I care. I don't mean to be intrusive. Is this okay? Do you need somebody to stand here and wait for a second? I don't mind. I've got time. Like, there's a way to respond to a situation. I don't think you need to be concerned about the kids in the car for the most part. No. I leave my kids in the car sometimes. I totally leave my kids in the car. And and, And I talk to them about it as... This is a moment of responsibility for you. Mm-hmm. I'm going to trust you to do this. And here are the rules for that. And when I get back, we're going to celebrate how big you are, that you were able to handle this, right? I think it's an important lesson. But let's say you are concerned and they're in, and being concerned is somewhat reasonable in the circumstances. There are tons of ways to handle that where you've actually shown love and care for your neighbors instead of just hostility and trying to be punitive immediately with people. Oh, it just wears me out. I mean, and I really try hard 
I mean, I would up and move to Utah if I could, because they are the first, they passed a law protecting free range parenting, which I think is amazing. Um, You know, like one time I let Griffin, we have a park directly across the street from a small grocery store and he was in kindergarten and I let him cross the street. I gave him money to go in the store, buy the juice and then come back across the street to the park. And my husband was like, I can't believe you didn't do that. I'm like, no, he has to learn. Like he has to, I have to give him the ability to, to do something and accomplish it. That's how you build confidence. Praising your children from now to Monday is a very shallow basis for confidence. Now, do parent do children need to feel like their parents love and accept them? Of course they do. Of course they do. But confidence is built by being put in situations where you're a little bit afraid and you're not sure what to do and you succeed and do it or you fail and you realize grit is built by failing and realizing the world didn't end and I handled that and now I'll try again. Children need those situations. There was a really good piece in NPR about a book. The, the piece is called Why Children Aren't Behaving and What You Can Do About It. And the, the book is called The Good News About Bad Behavior by Katherine Reynolds Lewis. And I'll put the link to the, the NPR story in our in our show notes. But she says, we basically have a crisis of self-regulation. Like kids don't, they have too much unemployed time. They don't have enough time to really go and do something and build confidence by seeing that they're contribute and that they can be a part of the family or the community of the neighborhood. And it erodes self-worth. They have to have, and I honestly, I think there's some adults that have a crisis of that as well. Like you have to see that you can both build the confidence by succeeding, like I said, and saying, oh, I did it, or failing to realize the sun still shines and that you can try again and get better the next time. And you can't do that if you're too terrified at every second that something bad's going to happen. So I have to protect you from every bad thing. I think that's exactly it, that we are arresting development mm-hmm. and then seeing the results of that arrested development, that we are saying, I cannot allow my child to have any modicum of independence, and therefore I don't have any independence. And that's why I need to call the police instead of dealing with a difficult situation on my own. Mm-hmm. That it's all the same thing. It is that we are paralyzed by our fear of each other, of not doing the right thing, of being punished when we don't do the right thing. It's really a lack of agency across the board, and we are entrapping ourselves in it. And we have to just choose otherwise. And you can choose otherwise in in just a series of decisions throughout your day, every single day. Just standing up to someone and saying, I heard you say this. I And we can do it with kindness, right? I heard you say this. I don't think you meant it this way. Let's discuss at work. Mm-hmm. Having your child order their own food at a restaurant, right? There are so many little ways to kind of start building ourselves back up from being these shells of people who are afraid of authority and what it might do to us. Mm-hmm. But I just think that's the path forward. Well, and also... I need to rant about one more thing real quick, and then I promise I'll try to move forward into a more action-oriented space. But I'm still a little angry, okay? Because I think the other thing that really bugs me about the undercurrent of this is that, you know, I've had conversations when I say, like, oh, well, I let them do this or I let them do that. And there's this idea of, like, well, you're just being naive. You don't understand what could happen. Okay. With love and respect, a person walked into my high school when I was 17 years old and killed three of my classmates. So I really resent the idea that I'm too naive to bad things happening in life. But, you know, I was recently talking to my therapist about on the macro level, the powerful lesson for that event for me was life changes and you might as well make the best of it because it can change just like that. And so I have those fears 
when I let Griffin cross the street or I let my children do something or whatever it is, like I'm caught, you know, I'm, I'm just as afraid of something happening to myself as the next mother of an accident or, you know, losing one of these precious people I've been entrusted with. But that's my shit and they don't deserve that. And they don't deserve to be, you know, treated as something precious that makes me feel better when they're whole and complete individuals unto themselves who deserve a chance to face their fears and be independent and go out into the world, which is filled with tragedies and sadness and death and accidents and bad people. And that was the contract I drew up with life when I decided to have kids. And so, you know, I just, it is hard. I'm not saying it's not hard. I'm not saying it's not scary every time. I decide to send my kids out to do something where there's real risk involved. Although, let me be clear, I don't really think there's much risk in leaving your kids in the car by themselves outside of a grocery store, but whatever. Um, but like in the in the instances in which there there is real risk, but, you know, for me, my like I said, the the value that I try to instill in my children that I try to live my life by is that to pay attention to the risk and not to be driven by fear. And I just don't want that from them. I don't want that for them. I want them to understand that there is risk and the bad things that can happen and the sun still shines and life goes on and you learn and you become a better person. And, you know, it's hard and it's scary, especially when it's with your own kids. But the alternative is so much worse. Yeah, I think the message that I want Jane and Ellen to learn is that bad things are going to happen. Mm-hmm. They they are. You can live your life in the most sheltered, uh, perfection-driven environment possible, and your heart is still going to be broken, and and terrible tragedies are still going to be part of your experience. And who you are as a person really consists of how you handle all of that. Mm-hmm. And it's, so it's my job to, of course, do my very best to keep you safe while giving you the tools for when life is really awful for you. That's my job to teach you to teach you to be upset sometimes. I tell my girls a lot these days. You can be mad. Yep. Sometimes it's my job to make you mad cuz you need to learn how to be mad. Let's talk about that right now. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we're just we're we're shirking our responsibilities. It's so much easier as a parent for nothing hard to ever happen to your kids. But that's that's really lazy parenting. But I mean, I think a lot of this comes down to our fear is so overwhelming and we don't want to do the work of work of, of getting through that. So we we get lazy and we just try to avoid anything that makes us scared. I'm just saying and or we can just gobble the dumpling babies right up. Throwback. Throwback dumpling baby. That's what that's getting at though, man. That's what that that's why that piece is so beautiful cuz that I think that's what she spoke to is like, I you know, god, it is so hard. You just want to gobble them up and keep them safe. But alas, not a reality for since our children are not dumplings and we are not allowed to eat them. <laughs> oh, dumpling baby, you are so you are good for so much content. I love you so much. <laughs> Well, I think that dumpling baby is is the same. Mm-hmm. Eating the dumpling is the same as calling the police when your neighbors are loud or calling the cops because there's someone at your pool that you don't recognize or calling the cops because you see a kid 
checking out the chips in the grocery store without the parent on top of them. You know, you, we, we have got to stop using the police as a way to exercise all our personal stuff. Word. And the police, I'm sure, very much appreciate that perspective. Yeah, and just start taking some responsibility for handling our stuff um, as it presents itself and also for having some perspective on what's really damaging and what's just another day and none of your business. Amen. None of your business. I would like to underline and highlight that part. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. All right, we're going to end as we always do by sharing something a little bit inspiring for the rest of the week. This week, I wanted to share a section from Jen Hatmaker's book of Mess and Moxie, Wrangling Delight Out of This Wild and Glorious Life. I really thought this section was so beautiful and so grace-filled, which is something I really strive for in my life. And she's talking about sort of a time in her life where her thoughts and beliefs shifted and therefore sort of the people around her shifted and dealing with forgiveness towards those people. She said, it is incredibly tempting to disparage people who didn't change with us. I have criticized the words of others when the same words came out of my own mouth just two years earlier, which is incredibly unself-aware. Human insecurity wants everyone right where we are in the same headspace at the same time. We want to progress and digress at a comparable rate. Everyone be into this thing I'm into, except when I'm not. Then everyone can be cool. We need to get better at permission and grace. What is right for us may not be right for everyone. We don't have to burn down the house simply because we've moved our things out. Other good folks probably still live there, and until one minute ago, we did too. We can bless the honorable parts of that house and express sincere gratitude for what we learned under its roof. It is unwise and short-sighted to isolate the remaining inhabitants because there is a lot of life left, and it turns out we are still neighbors. I love that Jen Hatmaker. She knows what she's doing. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of The Nuanced Life. We'll be back with you on Pantsy Politics on Friday and here again next Wednesday. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Nuance Life is produced by Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. The Nuance Life is listener supported. For $5 a month, you'll receive an extra episode of The Nuance Life at patreon.com slash thenuancelife. You can connect with us on our website, thenuancelife.com, and follow us on Instagram.